Hey, y'all. It's the NPR Politics Podcast. We have a very special two-part episode for you today. We'll spend some time talking about the news from this weekend, the primary states that voted, the Democratic debate on Sunday night. But we'll also talk about a word, the buzzword of this year so far, establishment. The entire Washington establishment. The Washington establishment. Establishment politics. But are you the establishment? I just don't understand what that means. Establishment suggests that there must be some Wizard of Oz somewhere pulling the strings. Uh, That's not the way it works. We're going to talk about what the people who use that word mean when they say it and why you're only going to hear it more. First, some intros. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, digital political reporter. And I'm Ron Elving, editor correspondent. All right. First, primaries and caucuses over the weekend in Maine, Louisiana, Kansas, Kentucky, and Puerto Rico. Ron, what were the big headlines from these votes this weekend? Ted Cruz would be the big headline, really, because he won in several of these caucus tests. And now these were very low turnout events. But because he won and won big in places like Kansas and Maine, he can take home bragging rights for winning a state and also disproportionate shares, if you will, of the delegate count from those states, because that's possible to do in these smaller turnout events. They're still proportional, but they're not exactly proportional in the way the primaries are. So as a result, he gets an extra bang for his buck. And that's true on the Democratic side for Bernie Sanders as well. So Bernie had a good weekend. He won three of the four states. Of course, the fourth one was Louisiana. It had far more votes than the other three put together. But because he could say, hey, look, I won in places like Kansas and Nebraska, Maine, of course, also, which is not too far from Vermont. But when he wins in places like Kansas and Nebraska, and he also won in Oklahoma, which was a primary, he can say, I'm a national candidate. And his campaign manager has been out there saying, Hillary, you know, she's kind of a regional candidate. Hmm. She does real well down (laughs) south, but I don't know that she can do anything outside of there. She really struggles to win outside the south. So even with these good weekends for Sanders and Cruz, Donald Trump is still in the lead for the GOP, and Hillary Clinton is still in the lead for the Democratic Party, right? That's right. I mean, in big leads. Hillary Clinton lost, what, maybe three delegates off of her lead, but her lead is in the hundreds. Wow. And here's the real point. These little caucus things, they're going away. They're not going to be a lot more of them in either party. There'll be some, you know, we've got some small states coming up, but we're getting closer and closer to the big states. We've got Michigan this week. Next week, we go to Ohio, Florida, Illinois, North Carolina. Uh, These are all top 10 states in terms of population. They're all primaries. It's going to be a different ballgame. Yeah. You know, when you when you talk about this whole, you know, Hillary being a regional thing and Bernie, you know, not being regional, being national. I mean, I think a sort of undertone that goes to all of that is also the, the fact that Hillary Clinton does tend to win a broader set of racial groups. I mean, Hillary d- does much better among black voters, uh, Latino voters. There's, you know, there have been some splits in some states thus far. But the point is, I mean, Hillary does better in the South. Yes, but she also does better among black voters. And they've helped hand her some of those victories pretty handily. Yeah. You know, yeah, once you get 10 percent of the vote being African-American, that's it. It's Mm -hmm. over 10%. And of course, in many of these states, it's far, far greater than 10%. South Carolina is a majority of the vote. So when you call her a regional candidate, it's perilously close to saying she's a racial candidate or Hmm. she's dependent on a racial group. We'll see what happens as we get to the voting in the northern states. And as I know you've been told by some of the Sanders people, they expect African-Americans in big northern cities like Detroit and Chicago, Cleveland, Philadelphia, New York, to be quite different. We'll see if they are. Um, So we were just talking about black turnout in northern states. Seemed like last night's Dem debate was all about outreach 
to those black voters in Michigan. Um, there was a lot of jockeying between Bernie Sanders and, and Hillary Clinton about who has a record of helping those people. Um, here's a clip. I voted to save the auto industry. He voted against the money that ended up saving the auto industry. Oh. I think that is a pretty big difference. Well, I, if you are talking about the Wall Street bailout, where some of your friends destroyed this economy, you know. Through, excuse me, I'm talking. Let him sprung. Oh, snap. If you're you know, going to talk, tell the whole story, well, Senator Let Sanders. me tell my story. You tell yours. I will. So two things I noticed. You know, there's this squabbling over who supported what bailout. But also the tone of this debate, at least for the Democrats, was the most aggressive I've seen it. No? Yes, absolutely. I, I, they've been they've been trending in this direction for a while because for a period in the fall, Hillary Clinton wasn't worried about Bernie Sanders. He didn't seem to be a real threat to her. So she could be very generous with him. And he was generous with her with respect to the email controversy and so on. And it looked like they were just going to be sort of comrades in arms and they were going to, you know, do a friendly kind of, uh, of primary in which they brought out ideas and they talked about their party and so on. And there would not be a personal clash. But as soon as Bernie Sanders started to be a real threat. And of course, he almost won Iowa. And then he did win New Hampshire huge. And now, of course, he's been collecting some of these smaller caucus states and one primary in Oklahoma. That makes the whole matter of them getting on stage together fraught with all kinds of conflict. And you know they're being advised by their teams to be tough and to not look like you are in any way giving any quarter. Right. Well, and I mean, you know, where are we here? We're in Michigan. We are in the heart of auto manufacturing and trade agreements, you know, in the past have affected the auto industry. And Bernie Sanders, trade is the big issue where he can and does hit Hillary Clinton very hard. But does that outweigh what's perceived to be his lack of support for the auto bailout? Also, there, I saw some questions online last night from some folks saying, well, he actually did support it. And can we get to the bottom? I mean, I know that ultimately he did not vote for the disbursement of auto bailout funds. So this gets into this gets into why Congress and its workings makes a difficult backdrop for a campaign because there are you remember John Kerry famously saying in 2004 well I was for it before I was against it (laughs) yeah that was a perfectly legitimate explanation of a complicated series of votes that he had cast but it made him sound terrible he sounded uh, irresolute he sounded as though he didn't know his own principles and this is almost impossible to avoid if you are a senator and you've cast many votes on different phases of a piece of legislation now Bernie Sanders was more than glad to say he voted against the Wall Street Street bailout yes. back in 2008. Mm-hmm. Of course, we know that. Uh, but we're now talking about something that happened under President Obama in 2009. It's a little different. He would rather talk about the one where he clearly wanted to be against Wall Street, but it was more complicated when it came to what Obama was proposing to do to save the auto industry. Yeah, Interestingly, TARP uh, ended up turning a profit for the government. The, the, auto banks, bail- the, the, yeah. the bank bailout. Huh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the auto bailout did not. The auto bailout lost money. Not a whole bunch. And it's a great irony that the extremely unpopular bailout of the banks turned a profit and the much more popular and and in many ways effective bailout of the auto industry is a little more complicated when you get to the books, although General Motors is with us today and would not have been probably without that bailout. So Michigan uh, has its primary Tuesday night uh, along with a few other states. How important is that vote? How How important is tomorrow night? 
Michigan is going to matter a great deal to both Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. We assume that Hillary will do well in Mississippi, same day. But Michigan is the big story. It's the top 10 population state. and uh, I didn't know that. It is. Wow. Texas is the only other one that's voted thus far. Mm -hmm. And Hillary, of course, won that one. If she were to fail to win in Michigan, it is going to interrupt the narrative big time. Oh, yeah. Because people are going to say, whoa, wait a minute. We thought she was on a glide path. She's not if she loses Michigan. If she only barely wins Michigan right now, the polls are showing her up double digits. If she only barely squeaks it out, the same narrative will stumble. All right, so that's the news of the weekend. Let's get into the second part of this episode. We're going to talk about the word establishment, the E word. It's a word you've heard more than you. (laughs) I'm not going to say that. Should we call it the four-syllable word? (laughs) (laughs) He's here all week, guys. Sorry. I'll be quiet. Establishment. Four syllables. Um, This is a word you've heard more than you realize if you've been following the election this year. And, Danielle, you wrote a big, sprawling really, really good piece all about this for our website. Right, yeah. What's the main idea? Uh, Well, it's pretty simple. One is that, you know, we've just been using this word to a huge, um, a massive degree this election. I mean, I went back and did some painstaking LexisNexising and counting with the help of the great NPR library. Uh, And in the lead up to the Iowa caucuses this year, Across four major newspapers, this is not a super scientific study. Just Which sort four? Of, uh, Chicago, L.A., New York, and Washington Post. So that Chicago mm-hmm. Tribune, mm-hmm. Los Angeles Times, New York Times, yes, Washington Post. That's cool. yes, right. those four. And establishment in the political sense that we are talking about, or the word anti-establishment, what have you, it was used 128 times this election cycle. In 2012, it was 45. In 2008, when we had both parties running candidates, it was 22. Huh. So it's roughly threefold above 2012, which is a pretty big deal. Yeah. So first, define this word as best you can and then explain (laughs) why it's risen in use. I mean, define establishment. (laughs) I mean, that's sort of the point here, (laughs) right? That's really hard to define. I mean, you know, it's sort of that joke that David Foster Wallace told in that one speech about fish and water. Like the fish saying, what the hell is water? I mean, establishment comes up when the establishment is threatened. You don't need to talk about the establishment when the establishment is doing really well, is my theory here. And right now, the establishment is threatened by one Donald J. Trump. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And to to an extent, people would say also on the Democrat side, Bernie Bernie Sanders, Sanders, um, in in a different fashion, perhaps. But yes, the establishment is threatened very much. So to the best of our ability, let's get a working definition in a minute or less of establishment. It's a free-floating definition. It truly is. <laughs> I need clarity. All right. All right. Let me try again. Let me try again. Let me try again. The establishment is the powers that be. You know that phrase? And we use that We use that when we talk about the people who are running a high school. We use it when we talk about the people who are running the NFL. Whoever is in charge. The man. In our yes. imagination. Okay. Yes. That's yes. another perfect okay. way. Yeah. Explain. And so if you're yes. anti-establishment, you're sticking it to the man. That's yeah. right. We're the populists. We're the people. We the people. Power to the people. And never to the powers that be. But in the end, of course, the powers that be remain. And sometimes the people get frustrated. Right. And so then by definition, establishment ends up, you know, having certain connotations, whether you can say these define it is anyone's guess. But I mean, you know, the establishment tends to be white. It tends to be male. Quite often, you know, it it used to be called the Eastern establishment uh, in decades past. You know, it's people who were educated at Ivy League schools. It was the Rockefellers. You know, later it was the Bushes. Scions of powerful rich families. But here's the thing like that in general 
is on the downward slope in American politics. The idea of the party bosses sure. in smoke-filled rooms, the ideas of dynastic families that can rule politics, that's becoming less and less of a thing. So why are we talking about it more and more and more? Well, we're only talking about it more because it seems to be, as Danielle was saying, the water has been drained okay. from this pool and the fish is flopping. There's, there's, <laughs> there, there's, there's, a, there's a real question mark as to what replaces the world of the Bush dynasty. Mm-hmm. When Jeb Bush is one of the first people, well, one of the middle people to drop out. He couldn't even do that well. And, that's right. Couldn't when, even drop out first. Jeb, Jeb, Bush is, Jeb Bush is exhibit <laughs> so A. Jeb Bush is exhibit A for the establishment and what's wrong with it. And when you say they're on the down, yes, they're definitely sliding away in terms of their effectiveness. The powers that be are everywhere in some sense or another under pressure. Mm-hmm. Everybody is on to these folks and that makes it difficult for them to remain in place. Yeah. Right. So, okay, to take this another step. So why are we talking about the establishment? Because it's in trouble because the fish is flopping, as Ron said. Okay. So why are they flopping? I mean, and that's there's a lot of factors at work there. Uh, Distrust in government. There's a chart of distrust in government that I have been using on lots and lots of stories lately because I think it explains so much of what's going on in this election. Distrust in government is at a near historic high right now. People distrust the government and therefore they distrust the establishment. So they throw the bums out. They put new, you know, anti-establishment people in. But then, you know, there's a sort of cycle at work. Yeah, well, it's like... You don't like the establishment, so you put in guys who aren't the establishment, outsiders. That leads to gridlock because they don't want to cooperate or compromise. So then you go and vote even more outsider outsiders in, and this, like, cycle perpetuates itself. I mean, like, before we saw Trump, we saw the Tea Party, right? Mm-hmm. It's it, like it builds on itself, right? That is absolutely right. I, the, the idea of the Tea Party was a populist from the bottom up kind of revolution within the Republican Party, or if you will, within and without the Republican Party, but certainly anti-Barack Obama, anti the Democrats, anti anything that looked like a big government or a big government agency. And this, of course, corresponded with disputes over Obamacare. You remember those those town halls in the summer of 2009 where people were coming off mm-hmm. of buses and coming out from the street to object to the idea of Obamacare, which hadn't even been passed yet and which they hadn't really even seen any of the details of yet. But Death they, panels. Had, been, they mm-hmm. had been led to believe that it was going to be terrible and they believed it. So we've seen this going on really from the very first months of the Obama administration. And if you will... We saw it in the 1990s with the Republican takeover of Congress in 1994, and it's not a new thing. It's been part of the Republican dynamic for decades, but usually those people are expected to fall in line, provide their votes, and -hmm. vote for the Republican establishment candidate like Mitt Romney or John McCain or one of the Bushes. But this time the Tea Party was entirely anti-establishment once they were even in office. That's that's right. But, but, But what I'd add to this conversation is the party that is not in the White House tends to have higher distrust of government. Mm-hmm. So and and I would add Barack Obama was an outsider. It's exactly. no, it is no surprise that after 8 years of a very unpopular in the end George W Bush that we got the hope and change candidate who was not of Washington at the time. Yes, he was a senator but not of Washington in the way that Hillary Clinton was. And so now after 8 years of Obama and he is very unpopular among Republicans, it is no surprise that we are getting this kind of a wave on the Republican side. It goes back and forth. So one thing that I kind of want to talk about, this little pet theory I have, is that most people who are in the establishment don't want to call themselves establishment. (laughs) Why is that? It's really weird. Like, for me, the parallel is, like, being a hipster. (laughs) I think that's great. Like, you know what a hipster is when you see a hipster. 
But any good God-fearing hipster is never going to say, I'm a hipster. Hi, my wife and I are hipsters, yeah. <laughs> and uh, we shop at such and such a store, Urban and Outfitters. we get our coffee here, and <laughs> yeah. so, I mean, we're because, hipsters. Because, like, there are people who say that they're not establishment, but they clearly are establishment. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about you, Ted Cruz. Like, he was in the Senate. He was in the Bush administration. Princeton and he Harvard. went to Princeton and Harvard. His resume screams establishment in fluorescent lights. Yes. But he and, would never say that he is that. Oh, he's the anti-establishment in his mind. Yeah. What's the deal with that? The deal with that is that the establishment can always be characterized as those people who are in some degree of power and you oppose them. Mm-hmm. The people who are in some degree of power that you don't oppose are the heroes, the good people, the ones who are fighting the good fight. In Ted Cruz's case, government is the establishment, the democratic power structure, labor unions, mm-hmm. teachers unions. Those people are the establishment for Ted Cruz. You know? But like this is not just a GOP issue. Like no. Bernie Sanders is running as anti-establishment. He has been in the U.S. Senate for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Decades. He's That's not right. a Democrat. But I mean, he's not a Democrat, yeah. and, and I think any one of the senators would agree that he has not been part of the establishment in the Senate, although he does have a committee chairmanship. He's been chairman of the Veterans Affairs Committee. But he is not seen as part of the establishment in the Senate, and neither is Ted Cruz, for that matter. He's a bomb thrower. He's a total you know, disruptor. Mm-hmm. And if you are within the establishment but clearly a disruptor in the establishment, maybe and that should give you the, cred- the cred. Yeah, you could mm-hmm. say... I may be in that world, but I am not of that world. So then I I need one of y'all to give me like a three-point checklist or test so I can determine who is or is not establishment. Well, it's not a three-point test, but (laughs) I wanted to... Do you own a sailboat? (laughs) Do do you own a pair of boat shoes? Dockers? I I own boat shoes, Do you wear dockers? Anyway, no, but I Is there anyone in your acquaintance whose name is Muffy? (laughs) (laughs) Or Kip? Or Kip. Let's okay. get in there. Okay. All right. So it's it's not a three point definition, but there was this article I read in the New Yorker this weekend. It was from my backlog of New Yorkers. I don't remember which week it was, but uh, it was about leadership and studies on leadership and what makes oh, a good yeah. leader. I started that one and didn't yes, finish it. It's was by, it good? Yeah, it was great. Okay. It was by Joshua Rothman. It was about you know like Steve Jobs and business leaders and so on. But at some point, it got into presidents and presidential candidates and. Uh, Joshua Rothman talks about this 2012 book called Indispensable by a Harvard Business School professor named Gautam Makunda, and I am probably butchering that. I apologize. Uh, But he has this sort of schema for saying what kind of people have run for president. He has filtered and unfiltered. Filtered means that you have sort of been filtered up through the leadership process. Through the establishment. Yes. The example he gives is Gerald Ford, uh, you know, someone who you know, had spent a lot of time on Capitol Hill, who had, you know, maybe some leadership roles, eventually was vice president, you know, someone who keeps getting picked for things, who people seem to like, who works with people, you know, and who eventually became president. Uh, The person I kept thinking of was Paul Ryan, was in the House for a while, chairman of this committee, chairman of, I believe it was what, budget, then ways and means. But but that Um, beard is so anti-establishment. Oh my goodness. He got rid of it. Uh, and, and, of course, also he was on the ticket as the vice presidential egg, nominee. Exactly. Yeah. And so I, the point that I'm getting to here is that he, unfiltered, you know, tends to be, you know, you have Barack Obama. And in this election, you have Donald Trump is definitely, you know, the definition of unfiltered. But the point here is that the filtered presidents tend to cluster near the middle in terms of success. Like they're, they're you know, they do a fine job. Okay. The unfiltered ones tend to be fantastic or abominable, essentially, is sort of how he huh. uh, Rothman describes it in this Did article. he have a theory about Obama's, if Obama is unfiltered? 
I don't know if Obama figured into the study, actually, because uh, okay. he may have been okay. too young okay. for president. Gotcha, I'd have gotcha. to check on that. Okay. Um, then, And this is the best point that Rothman makes, and I think it's a thing that you can really see working in this election, which is this idea that electing an unfiltered leader is a risk. And the question yeah. is, are times bad enough right now to take that risk? And one of the things that Josh Rothman points out here is that Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders spend a lot of time telling you how bad things are. Things are terrible. And sort of the extension of that then is take a risk, you know, vote for someone who maybe is more of an outsider. We can argue whether Sanders is filtered or not here, of course, because he he's quite experienced. But the point being, outsiders need to say something to get in. And maybe the thing you say is, guys, we got to change things. We got to change it now. You We're know? desperate. Yeah. 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 We're de desperate times call for desperate measures. Right. Yeah. Uh, last question for us. Are we part of the establishment? I'd say so. Bernie Sanders says, the Wall Street establishment, the Washington establishment, and if I must say, the media establishment. So we're part of the establishment? Bernie says so. So I yeah. am, I'm a hipster and I'm part of the establishment? Yeah. Ugh. I mean, you know, the, the, the guy who claimed uh, credit for coining the term uh, establishment, this British fellow back in the 60s, he, he also, you know, had the media lumped in there. It's It's not just government. It's... You know, it's the powers that be. It's the, as Ron was saying, it's the party machinery. It's the yeah. union machinery. It's and the also lobbyists. we're like legacy the... media. Like we've been around since the seventies. Yeah. But like, is BuzzFeed not the establishment? Not mm. yet, but they will get there if they're around long enough. Yeah. Because it has something to do with longevity, and it has something to do with just being there for a period of time and people getting used to you. Right. Or maybe these BuzzFeeds and these Vox can like Madonna their way out of becoming an establishment and just always keep changing. I don't know. I'd, I'd recommend they do that. Yeah, yeah. They yeah. should Madonna their way right out. Of I just, it. <laughs> I just like Madonna as a verb. I'm gonna mm. like luxuriate in that okay. for a while. Yeah. We're there. All this right. is fun. I'm gonna read the outro. So we just Madonna our way on. Let's out of this. Madonna our way out of this interview. Which era Madonna are we? I'm definitely Ray of Light Madonna. Oh, I'm Truth or Dare. <laughs> what are you getting? I can't top that. I'm, 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 gonna, I'm gonna say Evita. You were so quick with it. You I knew know. exactly what you were gonna say. Thanks for the setup, Elvig. <laughs> oh my god. Mental okay. images are. Now you gotta go. Which Madonna are you? Uh, I'm gonna say Evita. Oh. Ooh, I like that. Ooh. I almost won an Oscar. All right. No, she Golden won a Golden Globe. Globe. Okay. She did win a Golden Globe. That's something. Mm -hmm. All right, that's it for this episode. If you are listening to this on or before Tuesday, March 8th, we want to let you know that the NPR Politics team will be live that night with coverage of the primaries. It's shaping up to be a very important night for both sides of the campaign. So tune in to elections.npr.org. You can listen to us live and we'll be on Twitter so you have a chance to talk to us live as well. And, of course, we'll be back here later in the week with the roundup of the primaries and whatever else happens this week. Uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for rating the show on iTunes. Thank you for emailing us your questions and feedback at nprpolitics at npr.org. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, digital political reporter. And I'm Ron Elving, editor correspondent. We'll see you next time on the NPR Politics Podcast. Truth or dare. <laughs> <laughs>